Hi, hello and welcome. This is the Zonecast where we interview emerging professionals, entrepreneurs and academics. And uh, today we have with us on the show uh, Hind Al-Abadli. Uh, she is the professor of chemistry at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, hi, Hind. How are you? Welcome to the show. Hi, Salman. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Perfect. Thank you for uh, taking the time to be on the show. And uh, I want to start by talking about your background. Uh, can you share your professional and personal background? Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up in the United Arab Emirates and I um, finished my schooling there up to the university as well. Um, I, I specialized in chemistry at the United Arab Emirates University uh, for four years during my undergraduate um, education time. And then I left uh, the UAE at the age of 22 to the United States uh, to pursue a PhD in chemistry. Um, so I worked with Professor Vicky Gracian at the University of Iowa, and my PhD thesis was in atmospheric chemistry. And during that time, I, you know, developed interest to pursue further research in geochemistry. Um, so I, I moved to Northwestern University after my PhD for a postdoc position at Northwestern University. And I stayed there for about a year and um, six months. And then I, my, and then I applied for academic positions after that. And uh, I moved to Canada for my first academic post, which is at Wilfrid Laurier University. Sorry, uh, I was uh, I was asking. Um, I'm curious to know how you um, how and when you developed your interest in uh, science, and how old were you, and what sparked the interest? Right. Yeah. So I I think you know um, it, it was in high school uh, when my teachers realized that I am um, I am good in science and um, among one of the top students. Um, so, you know, during my time in high school, we had to choose a stream between arts and science at um, for grade uh, 11 and 12. And, you know, my, my teachers at the time and the whole community and families as well would, you know, would encourage students who are excellent in science to pursue the science stream. Um, and it didn't matter if you're a boy or a girl. It's it, it actually, you're good in science, you just have to stick to the science stream. So this is how it was. Um, so it was my teachers who actually uh, highlighted that at a, at a very early um, very early stage in my education. Uh, so it became still clear that in, you know, grades 11 and 12 will be in, um, will be in the science stream. And during that time, um, I had, you know, I had to write a research uh, paper for a chemistry class, and uh, I decided to do the, broad, the project on um, on pollution in general. So I wrote um, a 50-page research paper, uh, if you will, um, on air pollution, water pollution, on soil pollution, and it was it, it was an eye-opening experience for me to read about, you know, the damage that has been done to the environment since the Industrial Revolution. Um, so, so it was high school that actually, you know, um, got me interested in environmental work as well. Wow, that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, so I was reading online that, uh, 
um, you're doing a study on air pollution uh, in Canada. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about that uh, project? Yes, yes. This is uh, um, an exciting new program in my lab. Um, so I've been talking with an environmental consultancy company about um, starting an air pollution study in the city of Kitchener about two years, for two years now. Um, where the idea was that we have low-cost sensors that um, we can purchase and install in different locations in the city and uh, monitor uh, real-time pollutant level um, as a function of time and and meteorological parameters. But then we hit a a point uh, in the project where, like, who's going to put the seed funding for it? And um, so we we, got, we talked about our idea with the city of Kitchener, and the city of Kitchener really um, liked the idea because it, it coincided with their initiatives on uh, climate action within the city. And then how COVID hit, and and when COVID hit, you know, um, a lot of a lot of things uh, were put on hold, except the fact that the government in, ended up injecting uh, new money into research uh, related to COVID-19. And at the time, I thought, you know what, this is uh, this is a great opportunity to actually pursue because when we went through the COVID-19 lockdown, there was um, a significant reduction in traffic and in aviation and industrial activity. And, and that level of, um, um, of reduction in human activity had impact, measurable impact on the levels of pollutants. So I wrote a grant to the federal government requesting um, funding um, for uh, to rent, actually, just to rent, you know, a few low cost sensors to install in the city so that we can look at uh, baseline pollution in the app in the, with minimum human activity so that when COVID lockdowns are lifted, we can quantify how much um, a city like Kitchener experiences in um, increased pollution. Um, as a result of, you know, cars and, and uh, industrial activity and, and transboundary pollution from the states. Um, so we got funding for that. And, and last week, you know, uh, we received additional funding from the federal government to, you know, to permanently uh, install these low-cost sensors in the city and to also acquire additional equipment uh, to look at particulate matter. Wow, that's uh, pretty amazing. Um how do you obtain uh, these uh, funding for your research projects? Is it from the university? Is it uh, any specific organizations uh, that uh, get you the funding? Right. Um, so scientists um, have, you know, uh, three three major funding uh, avenues that they can apply to. Uh, university um, is one of them uh, in the form of internal grants. Uh, the federal government, uh, through the Natural Science and Research Council of Canada, answer and also the Canadian Foundation for Innovation. Um, and the third stream is actually companies and, and the private sector. And the nice thing about um, um, the private sector is, is that, you know, the government is interested for academic um, private sector partnerships. So they they have programs that they can actually double or triple even the amount that an industrial partner will put on the table. Um, so these are the three avenues that we usually approach for uh, funding for our ideas. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's interesting. Um, one thing that you personally believe in is, you know, academics and scientists can also be entrepreneurial in their approach. Uh, can you elaborate on how that works? 
Of course. Um, so entrepreneurs are, are people who have ideas that they demonstrate in a prototype. And they use that prototype to seek investors uh, and investing and investor money to move the prototype to the next level, to commercialize the product, uh, build a business and generate profit. So, you know, as scientists, we do the same type of activities. Um, we are in the business of generating new knowledge, publishing new science, and in some cases, build up, you know, build um, startup companies that commercialize the products from our ideas. And so what we do is that we write research proposals uh, that outline our ideas and how innovative they are, and we seek funding from the universities and, or, or the public and our private sectors to bring our ideas uh, to reality. Um, so, in, so you see there are similarities between the entrepreneurial approach and, and what scientists actually do in their research labs. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so previously you gave a TED Talk uh, and you shared your life story. And, um, you know, I, I was curious to know, you know, your whole experience being on TEDx and uh, and how you prepared for your talk and if you have any tips and techniques on effective public speaking. Sounds good. Yes. Um, yeah. So students at Laurier organized a TEDx event uh, that had the theme inspired thinking. And I was one of the speakers. Um, there were others as well from the university and outside the university. And in preparing for what I wanted to talk about, um, I asked myself the question, what is the idea that I think is worth spreading? And at the time, uh, the definition of success was occupying my mind. So there was a quote that I um, came across by Orison Swift-Martin that resonated with me, and it says, success is not measured by what you accomplish, but by the opposition you have encountered and the courage with which you have maintained the struggle against overwhelming odds. So I reflected on that quote in my TEDx talk, you know, um, through my life story, as you said, Um so the whole experience was really interesting um, because, um, you know, the TEDx, um, the TEDx format is, is, is short and, and sweet, and, but you have to deliver a, a concrete idea and, 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 and excite people about it. So as for tips for effective public speaking, um, clarity of message. I think one has to accept uh, public speaking engagements when it is crystal clear in their head the, mess- the message they want to deliver. Um, and the second thing is credibility. Credibility matters in public speaking. So make sure you highlight the qualifications you have uh, that gives you the authority to speak on a topic uh, at hand. And then try as, to know as much as you can about your audience and what they think, what you think occupies their mind at the time. Um, and aim to tell a story um, and to try to find analogies to what you know, to the to the story to the part of the story that you're trying to um, narrate, and of course, you know, you could listen to a lot of talks on the topics that interest you and take notes of the delivery styles you liked, read articles and attend workshops and webinars in your field that provide tips on how to hone your public speaking uh, skills, and practice, practice, practice makes perfect. So um, that's, you know, these are the tips that I have learned that, you know, I, I still continue to, um, you know, hone as we go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how long did it take for you to prepare for that particular talk? I believe it was like something around 17, 18 minutes long. How long did it take for you to rehearse and practice and craft your 
message and and story and everything but you know it it, it took about three weeks uh one yeah because once once I received the invitation, my mind started working you know and with what I noticed is that with with a new project that I embark on uh my mind keeps working at it even in my sleep, <laughs> so I made sure that I have. Uh, a notebook next to me where I write whatever keywords, whatever uh, important messages that I need to highlight as I was developing and thinking about the idea. And then you sit down and you write the script of what you'd like to read about or talk about. And then you read it over and over again. And, and you'll see yourself that you, you know, with every single read, you end up deleting stuff or adding stuff. And um, so, you know, you have to do you have to do your homework as early as possible. Once you get the invitation, then you just sit down and, and, and start putting down ideas on, on paper and, and, and see where it takes you. Um, and that actually builds up your confidence uh, the closer the date comes because you know that you've put the effort, you put the time into it, um, and, and you feel that you're ready now to deliver what you have been working on. Mm-hmm. How many people were present at the venue? Was it like a big audience? Oh yeah, no. Well, I think it was held in one of the biggest rooms at Laurier. Um, but it, because it was a full day event, uh, people were coming and going out of the room. Um, and there were audience outside the room as well because, uh, the room could not accommodate everyone. Um, so it was live streamed in the student center and, um, in the science building. Um, and the people who were in the room, um, we had representations from um, the university. We had invited uh, people from the community. I wasn't part of who actually was invited to be attending. I, you know, when I entered the room as a speaker, you know, I was just handed a brochure and I was told, you know, we have um, X number of people from different parts of the community. And I, you know, it, it, it had to be a dark, a dark room there. I didn't see a lot of faces at the time, but, uh, but it, this is how they ended up managing space with live cast. So. <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Did you receive any particular responses or feedback from the people who heard your talk? I did actually, I did. Um, there were, um, students who, international students who came from developing countries. And, um, who, you know, with whom I, who, with whom I did not have anything in particular in common when it comes to either religion or ethnicity or background. But they, they actually sh- told me that what I have experienced, um, you know, growing up and, and trying to get into the education system, um, in a country that I was not a citizen of, that experience resonated with them to some level. Um, so it, it was interesting to see. Um, that, you know, our, our human experience, it transcends differences, uh, uh, that, you know, we attribute ourselves to. And then there was another, another person who approached me saying, um, that it was, it was, it was a heartwarming, you know, um, talk, um, that illustrated resiliency and persistence and, and courage and, and it was wonderful to hear. So it was mostly positive responses. Um, and, and sometimes I still receive emails to this day, uh, you know, that people listen to it and they were touched by the stories and, and they found it inspiring. So I think I have achieved my goal to, you know, to tailor a talk um, to the theme of the whole event. So <laughs> yeah, I guess now you have become a source of motivation and inspiration for students uh, in in other countries who have shared similar experiences. 
Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you also gave a talk about um, uh, Earth's atmosphere, and you believe that there are so certain things that uh, everyone should know about the atmosphere. Um, so what what are the some of the things that you know uh, people should uh, know uh, when it comes to Earth's atmosphere? Yes, um, that, thanks for bringing this topic up. Um, uh, what I want you know the average citizens to know about the Earth's atmosphere is that it refers to the air that is about 50 kilometers thick from the Earth's surface. So the atmosphere uh, thickness to the radius of the Earth is analogous to the skin of the apple to the apple. This is how thin of a layer we're talking about. Yet, this very thin layer of air is what makes life on Earth possible compared to other planets. The greenhouse uh, gas effects regulates the temperature of the atmosphere in the layer where we live, and the ozone layer in the atmosphere above the air we breathe protects life on Earth from harmful UV radiation. But then, because of the industrial revolution, among the side effects of the industrial revolution that we built on burning fossil fuels, is air pollution, is acid rain, is the buildup of greenhouse gases that led to global climate change. And because of consumerism and, and consumer behavior, we ended up creating new chemicals that we considered safe for us to consume, but turns out to be damaging to the ozone layer. So we know the science and the chemistry of the negative, um, of these negative phenomena that affects air quality, that affects water quality and soil, that sustains life on Earth. And, uh, and therefore, there is, you know, individual responsibility and responsibility at different levels of government to make sure that we listen um, the impact of our human activities on environmental systems. So I want, I want everyone to, uh, you know, to know um, that it's a very delicate layer that we really should um, take care of. And I think that if the COVID, if we learn one lesson from the COVID-19 pandemic um, is the fact that when we have polluted air, it is invisible. It is invisible and it affects our way of life. And it may, it results in what we call social distancing in the case, because the air itself can be a media for transmitting diseases. So we, we really need to contemplate our effect and of our, the effect of our activities on, on that, you know, thin layer of earth, uh, thin layer of air surrounding earth. Uh-huh. So, um, definitely there is some level of awareness that is needed among the general public about the situation um are there any particular steps that uh, ordinary people can take to uh, protect the atmosphere or help the environment oh yes absolutely um so at an individual level the f- you want to look at how much energy you're consuming right um whether it is in the car that you drive or in city use in your home um and if if you have power because you own a home, for example, and you do not live in a rental uh, unit, have an audit, an energy audit for your home, and make sure that you are not wasting energy, because wasted energy means that you burn fossil fuels that results in emissions, and that energy was not used, neither by you nor by anyone who lives in the home. 
So energy efficiency audits for homes are the low-hanging fruit for reducing our, um, you know, our our carbon uh, footprint. Uh, if you are in the if you are in the process of think about a, a car to buy, you know, think about hybrids or think about electric cars, um, because that will actually again translate to your um, to your uh, ability to predict the impact that you will you will have on burning gasoline for for travel or for um, using a, a transport system. Or even, of, or if you if you can ditch the car altogether and rely on public transit, you know, do that. That's even better. Um, and then vote with your wallet. Vote with your wallet. Um, where do you spend the, the money that you spend? Do you you spend it? Um, and and why do you spend the money that you spend? I mean, if we contemplate about how much stuff um, we accumulate, um, do we really need all of that? Right. So if people think about um, the stuff they buy and, and they try to actually be conscious of their uh, per- consumer behavior, then will, uh, that will actually ha- lessen the impact on the emissions that will happen in, at an industrial level to, provo- to provide uh, consumer products. And um, there are other, you know, these are the, the two things that come to mind right now, but I, I have written articles on the topic um, that include also food sources. What do you get? What, you know, what type of meal uh, meals you you cook and and what type of food sources you have are they ethically sourced? Uh, do you support local farming? Um, so it's these are sorts of the areas that we we at an individual level we do on a single on every single day. You know, consume energy, uh, move around, and and the food that we eat. Um, but then within those activities, we can take steps to lessen our, our environmental impact. Mm-hmm. Those are definitely some um, good tips. And I guess everyone should take the environment and the atmosphere uh, more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, the pandemic has been a particularly difficult time for individuals and also for businesses. Uh, how did this uh, pandemic affect you personally? Uh, did you have any reflections? Oh yes, you know the um, you know I, when, when the when the lockdown happened, we were in nearing the end of the semester in March, and we had about three weeks where we had to quickly transition in lecturing to uh, online um, lecturing. So it, that transition happened really quickly, and it was a it, it was a stressful time because I, although I was teaching one course, but you know, I have not tested that in the past, so I, I was really, I guess, over uh, concerned about if, if the delivery of the material will be effective, if the students will will gain the same type of level of engagement as they do in a in a normal classroom. Um, so that was that happened, and then, you know, when when every time I will go out of the house, you know, to run errands and and get water and get food, it it was just, you know, I. I Depressing, honestly, to see lineups of people at the grocery stores waiting for because they had the stores had reduced working hours and they could and they had reduced the amount of people who can be in the store and it it broke my heart somehow you know every time I would go out shopping and I only have to do it maybe once a week or once every two weeks I will come home and I will need a few hours to recover from from seeing people lining up for food I you know I I, I always tell myself that you know I live in in a blessed country like Canada and 
people should not light up for food. But, you know, the scene, <laughs> it was across the country. It was just um, devastating. And then, of course, you you open the news and you read you read about stories of people who lost loved ones and the, the front care, you know, the frontline workers in the hospitals who couldn't even go home and be with their families because they didn't want to bring in um disease um to the house uh, hold and it, it you know these stories I, I i you know i i i i think i have a level of empathy um that made me very aware of of what people were going through at the time yeah absolutely um it's definitely a difficult time and i guess hopefully hopefully uh we will come out of this much better and much uh, stronger yeah. um what um, um, advice would you give to people who want to pursue a career in uh, STEM? Well, I would I would say that you know um, training in STEM at the university level opens up a wide range of options um, for fulfilling and stimulating careers uh, that will benefit people uh, as as persons, uh, their families, and communities, and the world at large. Um, the UN has identified 17 sustainable development goals for for countries to actually use as as guides for what needs to be improved at a local level. And if you actually dig into the majority of these sustainable development goals, you will see that you need science-based uh, data and you need you need um, science-trained individuals who can actually uh, provide evidence for what will work and what will not work. So STEM training um, um, and, and STEM uh, careers and, and teams that rely on scientists will benefit uh, from diverse populations because scientists are trained in problem solving based on the laws of the universe and having diverse teams uh, that can, who can analyze and solve problems from different angles require out-of-the-box thinking. And there, and life experiences of, um, of different people because of differences in gender or ethnic, religious affiliations or abilities enable that, uh, that out-of-the-box thinking. Um, so what I, my advice to anyone and everyone is to embrace yourself as a whole. Um, irrespective of how society labels you, and cultivate the scientific mind of yours, and live life fully with one goal in mind, um, to use science for the benefit of humanity and the environment. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, so I understand you have lived in several different countries, UAE, United States, uh, Canada. So what was your experience like and which uh, place do you like the most? Well, that, that's uh, I actually like all of them because um, I have good memories and and, and friends in in, uh, in the three countries. Um, that you know, I, I left the UAE because of limited opportunities. Um, opportunities opened up in the United States. I I went to the United States, um, and I, I built new friendships and relationships that I sustain till today. Um, and I loved, uh, you know, I, I loved living in the United States. I, I didn't see myself actually immigrating to Canada except after 9-11, when again, opportunities weren't, um, weren't very much for international students who, who are Arab or Muslim. Um, so Canada, so I immigrated to Canada because, you know, I saw, 
um, you know, I, I had friends who immigrated and, and things worked out for them. Um, and I applied for jobs um, in Canada and it worked out. You know, I, I came for a job. So I didn't come looking for a job. I, I came to start working right away. Um, and, and I've been in Canada since then, but I still have strong ties to the United States. And I still still have uh, strong ties with the United Arab Emirates. And I'm, you know, I'm expanding my international network beyond <laughs> the three countries, and we'll see how that uh, will go. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's um it's it's very interesting because I lived uh, maybe half of my life in UAE, you know, a few years of my life in America, and it's been what 15 years now in Canada. So it's um you know it's it's a mixed experience, but it's it's a wonderful experience because you know you get to meet people, you get to be exposed to different cultures and different backgrounds, different ways of thinking different environments, different weather, you know, experiencing seasons. There's a lot, a lot, a lot that happens when you live in different places. So I'm, I'm grateful for, you know, for, for the life that I've been having so far. So mm-hmm. So now, now your teaching is completely online and virtual. And when you made the switch, what kind of changes did you have to make uh, for, like, uh, delivering education completely online, especially for, like, science courses? Maybe that can be difficult. That's correct. You're right. I mean, I uh, this academic year, uh, uh, the fall and the winter terms, we have to lecture remotely. Um, and my courses are in physical chemistry, uh, where, you know, they're math intense courses. Um, and I, I, I found over the years that the best engagement method um, with students is to solve problems on, on the board and not to rely to completely on PowerPoint. Uh, so the first thing I've done was actually to buy um, a small whiteboard and bring it to my house. And I take videos of myself uh, lecturing about certain topics. And I, would, I post these videos on the course management um, um, uh, soft, you know, web, website uh, where students can access the videos at their own time. And, I, you know, I hold, I hold quizzes online as well. Uh, where students, you know, I upload the quiz and I give the students a certain amount of time uh, to solve um, the problems and, and submit back to me for grading. And every once in a while, I have a live session with the students. You know, we are just open open it up for about an hour and a half and we talk about uh, other problems. We solve the quiz together. Um, you know, we address any issues that are related to the course. But so far, this method has been working, and I've been receiving good feedback from it. Um, so I think um, the videos has um, has given students the flexibility to actually um, listen and and write notes and pause when they want to and and continue listening when they wanted to. So there were advantages uh, to this method um, that might not have been there with uh, you know with in class. Um, with in-class course delivery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing like if you have like those uh, um, in-lab stuff that you have to do, especially for like chemistry, uh, how do you do that? Right, right, yeah. So that's a good question. One of my courses uh, has a lab component to it. And the department, uh, the lab instructors, the chair of the department, has actually put a plan um, to uh, take into account um, social distancing. Um, so the scheduling of the labs um, continued for this semester. Some of the labs were concentrated in four weeks. Others are taking place over uh, the, full, the full 12 weeks of the semester. 
Um, but the scheduling part was tricky, but I think they figured it out so that they allow students to come in, conduct the lab uh, with physical distancing and with full gear of the personal equipment, uh, goggles and face shields and lab coats and gloves. Um, so, so, so far, um, most of our students have had the in-lab, uh, in-person experience, um, and we did not have to resort to uh, virtual labs. Mm-hmm. So, like, the labs are open uh, for certain weeks, and then they can book an appointment and come in person and do their stuff. The the come the common person and do their stuff is applying applying applied only to research students, but for uh, yeah for labs associated with courses they they the students have to come during the scheduled lab hours, um, and, and then they do not come to the university after that because the lecture component is delivered online. Okay, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Are you doing? Uh, you mentioned that you're expanding your international network. So, are you doing any international uh, research projects? Well, yes. Um, so, I um, that's the air quality uh, work that I have started have sparked interest um, with my uh, collaborators in the United States, and um, I'm I'm starting talks with um, a few with a group in China and with a group in Germany. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, we're still in the talking phase right now, but the hope is that, um, we will, you know, through ex- student exchange, through, um, knowledge, knowledge exchange, whether virtually or in person down the road, we will have, you know, the opportunity to strengthen and learn from each other. Mm-hmm. So from your study, um, do you think that, uh, the air in Canada is not as clean as we think, or do we have reason to be concerned? No, well, you know, so far, um, we do not have to be, you know, to, we, no, we, we're, okay, relatively speaking, <laughs> relatively speaking, air quality in Canada is, is much better than what it was, for example, in the 90s, when, when the country was experiencing acid rain and, uh, and effects on, um, or in the 60s when, uh, when we did not have regulations on the catalytic, um, in the emissions from cars, for example. Um, but in the, in 2020, our air quality is better, for example, than China, than India, than developing nations in general, um, because of the fact that we have strict regulations and strict laws. And when we look at long-term trends in pollution levels over 10 years, over 20 years, we see steady decline in pollutant levels that affect air quality health index. So we should not be concerned, but but at the same time, what we have noticed over the years is that human activities um, near um, you know near fa- near industrial activity uh, or in congested areas near, on highways, for example, or um, or in areas that experience forest fires like British Columbia or in Alberta, air quality get affected. Um, over short periods of time because of short term events or, um, and that can have, um, can have impact. So the question becomes is what can we do to, um, lessen or to even lower the emissions from, um, activities that still burn fossil fuels and at the same time, uh, think about adaptation in the way that, um, 
we will minimize the, the, the frequency of forest fires um, in areas uh, that that are affected where communities live. So these everything is connected in a way that our actions can actually influence impacts. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's uh, interesting. Well, it's good to know that the air here is relatively clean. So that's good to know when we go outside. Um, and hopefully it will stay that way. Um, well, Hindu, it has been uh, very nice uh, speaking with you and learning about your work and your background and your story. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Well, thank you very much again for having me. And nice to see, nice to meet, virtually meet you. <laughs> Yeah, likewise, likewise. Um, you want to share your uh, website or something if people want to find you or contact you? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I will email that to you as well. All right, perfect. Uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode and you get a chance to learn from Hind's story about resilience and about uh, how to pursue of the STEM careers and her research. And if you have any questions, uh, you can reach out to her. I will uh, put some information in the show notes. And thank you so much for listening to Soncast and stay tuned for more episodes.